And we are back with our 2024 lead, Donald Trump, back in Iowa. In less than an hour, the former president is expected to speak at an event in Sioux Center. CNN's Kristen Holmes is traveling with the former president, and she's at that event. Kristen, this event comes ahead of tomorrow's somber third anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And after President Biden's big speech on democracy uh, near Valley Forge, actually in Bluebell, uh, what do we expect Trump to say? Jake, I was told by advisors this morning not to expect any sort of direct response to President Biden. However, that was before we actually heard the speech, and there were parts of that speech, and I heard your panel discussing this, that were very personal, particularly, I would point to, having covered Donald Trump, the part where Biden called him a loser. So whether or not that still stands, we're trying to get more information on the speech. But I will point to the fact that when Donald Trump has hit back at Biden over Biden's arguments that Trump is a threat to democracy, he really has just tried to turn the table, saying that it is Biden himself that is a threat to democracy because of all the legal battles that Trump is facing. Uh, Trump saying that those are all politically motivated. And the other point I want to bring up, you mentioned January 6th. We are coming up on the three-year anniversary. Donald Trump, as he has run for president, has really downplayed the violence of that day, as well as fully embraced the January 6th rioters. He has not only said that he would pardon many of them, he also said that many of them would receive a government apology if he were reelected. He even recorded a song with them that was published with some of the men who are in prison or in jail, excuse me, uh, for their, uh, their acts on January 6th. Uh, so any sort of reflection or change in that stance seems very unlikely. Uh, we're 10 days out from the caucuses, obviously. Trump still holds a, a commanding lead there, according to polls. Um, then in New Hampshire, uh, which is about a week later, Nikki Haley is gaining on him, seems to have some momentum. He is running, a, or maybe it's a super back running a pretty harsh ad about her in New Hampshire. Any other signs that Trump might be getting nervous? Actually, they're both running, yeah, Donald Trump's campaign, but its first ad, putting out on the airways, going after her on immigration, trying to tie her to President Biden. We're also seeing the Super PAC had an ad. They've actually increased their spending there. They're clearly paying attention. They were watching Ron DeSantis very closely in Iowa. They believe that they are going to pull out Iowa and pull it out by a large margin. There were questions for some time. New Hampshire. They're watching that very closely. They see Nikki Haley surging in the polls. They know that New Hampshire is a different demographic of voters than Iowa. So clearly they are trying to stop or at least slow down some of that momentum with those ads, with putting people out in the field. And we expect to see that in the coming weeks. All right, Kristen Holmes uh, traveling uh, with Donald Trump in Sioux Center, Iowa. Coming up Wednesday, I'm going to moderate the CNN Republican presidential debate with my colleague, Dana Bash. We will be in Des Moines, Iowa, Nikki Haley. Ron DeSantis are going to share the stage. That's next Wednesday, January 10th, only here on CNN. Turning to our national lead now, a notable and maybe even shocking resignation from one of the most powerful and influential lobbyist groups in Washington, D.C., Wayne LaPierre, stepping down from the National Rifle Association of America, the NRA, effective January 31st. A civil trial involving LaPierre and the NRA is scheduled to start Monday. Let's bring in uh, Stephen Gutowski. He's founder of The Reload and he contributes to CNN. Uh, Stephen, how big a deal is this resignation and how surprised are you? Well, I think the word you use there is correct. Shocking. This is the face of the gun rights movement for the last several decades. The person who has really been the driving force behind how guns in America has unfolded, how policy has unfolded, uh, is now not going to be the head of the NRA anymore. That's, that's pretty remarkable. Why do you think it is? Why is he resigning? I think the timing says a lot. You know, you mentioned that the trial over the corruption allegations. You go into that because people don't know. People don't know about this. Obviously, mm -hmm. uh, the New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a lawsuit in 2020 to dissolve the NRA, claiming the organization violated laws for nonprofit groups and took millions for personal use and committed tax fraud. Yeah, that, that's the essential core of the, the complaint against the NRA and really against its leadership, like Wayne LaPierre. And uh, dissolution was taken off the table by the judge because he thought that wouldn't be helpful to NRA members who are really supposed to be the ones the attorney general is looking out for. But punishments against leadership, like removal, uh, fines against the organization, those were still very much on the table. And, you know, Wayne LaPierre is at the center of all of that. The NRA has tried to argue that they've reformed themselves, that they had made mistakes, but they put in new processes, that they've gotten rid of some of the people who were accused 
of corruption in this, in this instance. But all the while, they had Wayne LaPierre as the head, who is really the center of this whole case. And now, now he's gone. And Stephen, you've done some remarkable reporting uh, on this and on the way that the NRA uh, used or misused funds. <clears throat> What's the bottom line? Were they using funds corruptly? Were they using member dues to in ways that were not kosher? Yeah, I mean, they've admitted to at least some of these things, right? They, they, they've said that Wayne LaPierre and other members of leadership have taken excess benefits, they call it. But basically, they used NRA money to pay for lavish personal expenses like private flights and fancy suits and luxury suits? trips. Mm -hmm. Fancy, very fancy suits, much fancier than uh, anything that yeah, probably you or I own. But, uh, you know, that's t tens and thousands of dollars worth of suits in a single month sort of uh, situation was obviously one of the most famous allegations here, but but it also extended to self-dealing problems with uh, you know sort of ethical standards on the board of board members being paid by the NRA for certain uh, events that they would host, or there's a lot of things that uh, just are not common practice in uh, most well-governed organizations. And so these were the core of the allegations, and that Wayne Lapierre was effectively. Uh, in charge of, of how all of this went. And so even though the NRA had, had tried to argue in court that while well, we've self-corrected in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. a big impediment to that argument is the guy who's at the center of all of it was still in charge until just now. Stephen Gutowski, you were lucky you were in the building when the story broke. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Go Birds. Coming up, the meeting today behind closed doors at the U.S. Supreme Court, the subject matter, Donald Trump. Why a lawyer for the former president says the cases before the justices will be, quote, a slam dunk. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead today, all nine of the U.S. Supreme Court justices meeting in private today discussing which cases the court should take up, staring them in the face, of course, filings related to former President Donald Trump's ballot ban. If the justices take up the case, then they will have to determine whether Trump should be forbidden from holding office because of his role in the January 6th insurrection and the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. And at least one of Trump's lawyers thinks that the U.S. Supreme Court will rule in Trump's favor. Take a listen. I think it should be a slam dunk in the Supreme Court. I have faith in them. You know, people like um, Kavanaugh, who the president fought for, who the president went through hell to get into place, he'll step up. Those people will step up, not because they're pro-Trump, but because they're pro-law. Oh, that sound you hear is uh, Justice Kavanaugh's head exploding. But let's bring in CNN's Paula Reid. Paula, if the U.S. Supreme Court takes up this case, what specific set of legal issues do you think they'll focus on? Well, they have been presented with a menu of options by former President Trump and the Republican Party of Colorado. Uh, the GOP in Colorado presented three questions. The first is, does Section 3 of the 14th Amendment apply to presidents? Remember, even within the state of Colorado, the courts were split on this question. That is something the court, if they take up this case, will likely have to clarify. The next question is, okay, is this self-executing or is there a role for Congress? And then the Republican Party in that state also posed an interesting question, which is whether political parties have a First Amendment right that should be factored in here. Now, the Trump team posed more of a general question, which is, hey, was this a mistake to remove him from the ballot? More of a choose your own adventure uh, for the justices. But we know there's going to be a lot of pressure for them to rule narrowly and for the chief justice to build a coalition and consensus so this doesn't look like it has a partisan tilt. I can't imagine that they're not going to weigh in on this. There is just such confusion about yeah. this. Um, I mean, I don't want to state that that's definitely going to happen, but it just seems like something that they'll want to weigh in on. That's what most people think. When, when will we know if the justices decide to take it up or not? Yeah, I, it's hard to say. We don't know. That we I don't mean, know. Exactly. Okay, yeah. One thing everything, everyone agrees here, right? The challengers, Trump, the Republican Party, time is of the essence. I mean, you're going into a primary now where Trump will appear on the ballot, and you could have a situation where people don't know if the candidate they're voting for in the primary is going to be considered eligible to appear in the general. That's not ideal for anyone, nor is it ideal for democracy. So everyone is urging them to move quickly. Um, but there are a lot of questions about even even if we find out, OK, they're going to take up the case, then will there be oral arguments? Trump's not asking for oral arguments. He just wants the decision reversed. But that takes time, the briefing schedule, and then how long it takes them to decide. So timing is a huge issue here. We know they can move quickly, even within days if they want to. But since we didn't so far. We haven't gotten an answer on whether they'll take this case. It'll likely be weeks or months, not days. So we have an answer here. All right. Stick around because I want to bring in uh, others here. CNN Senior Supreme Court Analyst 
uh, justice analyst uh, Joan Biskupic, as well as uh, CNN legal analyst and former prosecutor Elliot Williams. Uh, Elliot, let me start with you. Uh, there's a group of House Democrats demanding, again, uh, that Justice Clarence Thomas recuse himself from this case, having to do with Donald Trump's eligibility. In part, they say, because of efforts to reverse the 2020 election by Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny. They wrote, quote, your wife was one of nine board members for a conservative political group that helped lead the Stop the Steal movement. And, quote, it is unthinkable that you could be impartial, talking to Justice Thomas, in deciding whether an event your wife personally organized qualifies as an insurrection that would prevent someone from holding the office of president. Um, what do you think of that argument? Look, I think it, it's, it's an incredibly bad look for Justice Thomas, given his wife's uh, work as an activist. The problem, and it's something we've talked about at this table at quite some length, is that the Supreme Court really doesn't have standards, uh, ethical standards or standards governing when justices really ought to recuse themselves from cases. If Justice Thomas can say or uh, assert that he can view a case uh, fairly and impartially, he doesn't have to recuse, and he's probably not going to. And this is an issue that has plagued the Supreme Court for quite some time. I really think it's it's about their reputation far more than it's about the facts of any one case. And, and, and Joan, if Justice Thomas does not recuse himself, and that seems almost a certainty, as, as certain as anything could possibly be in this world, death taxes and Justice Thomas <laughs> is not going to recuse himself, can the U.S. Supreme Court recover from the perception of being politically biased, given the fact that this, I mean, it's been a bad few years for the Supreme Court. It has, but I, let me just separate those two questions. I think the Supreme Court could rise to this moment. You know, think of how polarized we are. Think of how much people want some clarity on the law, on this question that has never been tested. If they approach this with transparency, and no matter how they rule, how they decide this, if their legal uh, grounding seems sound to people, and if maybe the chief can pull together uh, nearly uh, not just a majority, but unanimity. You know, I liken this a lot to what happened in 2020 when they were faced with the Trump document cases. And he worked very hard behind the scenes to get seven to two votes after starting out with five, four votes. So I think yeah, the integrity. Well, yeah, <laughs> Justice Thomas and Justice Alito. <laughs> right, okay. Yes, but no, I, don't rest your case yet. Because I think that what could happen is the court as a whole, as I say, might seize this moment in ways that inspire confidence. As to Justice Thomas, we already know in the first phase of a related Trump case on the question of whether he is immune from cr criminal prosecution, the Jack Smith case, he participated in that. It was just a subtle way that we knew when they issued the order that sent it back to the uh, lower appellate court, Justice Thomas did not note that he didn't participate. And that's the only way we know. And that goes to the question of transparency. If they are transparent, and you said, when will they decide? Right now, the clock is ticking on today. They have not yet told us if there are any orders coming. So we're kind of in limbo. And when the court does that, going into a, a weekend or you know, doesn't give good signals about how they want to handle stuff, again, it, it just seems a little more shadowy than we'd like them to see. So the immunity case uh, that Joan mm -hmm. just brought up, uh, obviously Jack Smith wanted that expedited and the U.S. Supreme Court said no. Yeah. So uh, the, the question about whether or not he has immunity from prosecution for anything he did as president uh, is next going to go to a federal appeals court. Court, then it could be theoretically back at the U.S. Supreme Court's doorstep. What's at stake here? Well, the big question, the constitutional question, is about presidential immunity. But the other issue here is timing and whether Jack Smith can bring the federal election subversion case before November, because this appeal has currently paused that trial. And as you noted, Smith went to the Supreme Court already. He asked them, hey, can you just decide this so we can move along with this trial or not? They declined. Whatever happens after next Tuesday's oral arguments, whatever they decide, will likely go again to the Supreme Court. It's unclear if they'll want to get involved, but the amount of time it takes to get there and for them to decide one way or another that has an enormous impact on whether that case will go before the November election. So um, I'm having a lot of flashbacks to previous <laughs> presidential elections, especially 2000. Uh, when the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on Bush v. Gore and sided, it was a conservative-leaning court, and they sided for the conservative candidate, George W. Bush. Uh, how do you see these current cases in light of Bush v. Gore? Bush v. Gore, for some people who don't remember, 24 years ago, so I can understand why I see people, people don't remember how tremendous it was by one vote, Jake, you know well, because five you wrote four, about yeah. five to four, split along ideological and political lines. So that was huge. It decided the election. 
just at the nick of time. It was right as uh, the electors were being certified in December of that election year. So that was really big. This is something that right now is momentous because it's going to determine whether the leading Republican candidate is going to be on a ballot. But we're at the very start of a cycle. This is going to be important for other cases, too, because other individuals could be accused of insurrection and kept off of the ballot, depending on how this court rules. Bush v. Gore, as we all said at the time, was good for one ticket, one train yeah. only, but it still reverberates. That kind of underlines the what critics would say is dishonesty of the decision. They said, we're ruling this way once yeah. and it can never be applied to anything else ever again. Right. Uh, but these other cases that are going before the Supreme Court, they will have resonance for, for centuries, uh, presuming that the world doesn't end. <laughs> they absolutely will. And again, and it's, we can't say enough how this affects the court's public perception. And Bush versus Gore, regardless of the wisdom or lack of wisdom of the decision, it affected how the public saw the court. They saw it as another political arm of government. And you can be certain that Justice, Chief Justice Roberts right now is thinking about how he can craft whatever these decisions are in such a manner that, number one, doesn't touch the insurrection question and sort of tries to resolve the case on some of these procedural points, but two, um, speaks with one voice that does not appear to be a partisan body. All right. Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. Israel's military uh, says that it struck more than 100 targets across Gaza overnight into today as they go after Hamas. Coming up, see the incredible impact of some of these recent strikes and the toll they're taking on not just Hamas, but the civilians still living in Gaza. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Topping our world lead today, fierce fighting and deadly airstrikes throughout Gaza, especially in Khan Yunus, the city in southern Gaza that's now the epicenter of Israel's operation to root out Hamas. As the attacks continue, a top United Nations official says as Gaza faces the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded, famine is right around the corner, adding, quote, hope has never been more elusive, unquote. CNN's Jeremy Diamond reports on the relentless bombing and unimaginable suffering. We must warn you, some of the images we're about to show you are disturbing. It's Ali. A child's lifeless body, carefully pried from the rubble. Gaza's civil defense says this is the aftermath of an Israeli airstrike in Deir al-Bala, a city where tens of thousands are seeking shelter, heeding evacuation orders like these dropped by the Israeli military this week. It's not just Deir al-Bala. Several cities where civilians have been told to flee have been hit by Israeli airstrikes in recent days, including this camp for displaced Palestinians in the southern city of Rafah. That city has been struck repeatedly this week, even as makeshift camps have ballooned in recent months, as seen in these satellite images. I have been displaced from one place to another. Buraj, Magazi, Nusayrat. Then we left the last place for the safety of our children. There is no safe place. That brutal reality all too clear at the morgue. As families mourn. The Israeli military says they struck more than 100 targets across Gaza overnight, reporting fierce fighting and strikes on targets, including Hamas command centers and rocket launch pads. Amid the strikes, some are once again on the move. Mattresses and blankets carried however they can. But fleeing Gaza is no guarantee of safety. 
The Najam family, who fled south from northern Gaza, are the latest to learn that cruel lesson. They told us to go to Maghazi, where it is safe. We have nothing left. Where do we go? We only have God. Seven-month-old Imad and nine other members of his family are now dead, killed in an Israeli airstrike according to Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital. They told us to come to the center and that it is safe. We came here and nothing is safe. For many, that exhausting, elusive search for safety is over. All that remains is the pursuit of dignity. There are no toilets, no food, no water, no clothes. With all this, I prefer to go back home and die with dignity than dying this way. And when civilians in Gaza aren't fearing death from above, they have to fear the threats to their lives all around them. Uh, you heard earlier a top UN human rights official warning that famine is just around the corner with the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded in Gaza. And beyond that, there is also the spread of diseases, uh, fifth, uh, diarrhea cases among children up 50% since just last week, and 90% of children under two are now subject to severe food insecurity. Jake. All right, CMN's Jeremy Diamond in Tel Aviv. Thanks for that important report. Coming up next, a new chapter in a sex scandal that has rocked Republican politics in Florida. And come close to the governor, Ron DeSantis, who is, of course, running for president. But first, a new look at one of the most remarkable emergency landings. This month marks 15 years since the miracle on the Hudson, and it is the subject of this week's The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. Here's a preview. In the 208 seconds that we had from the time we hit the birds and lost us until we had landed, I knew I had to take at least a few seconds of that time to make an announcement in the cabin, to tell the flight attendants and the passengers that we were going to make an emergency landing. I said, this is the captain, brace for impact. I could hear the flight attendants in the front and begin shouting their commands to the passengers in unison. Brace, 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 heads down, stay down over and over again. I sent my husband Steve a text message that was just one sentence that said, my flight is crashing, period. And as I was typing it, my seatmate, he said, put that up. He said, you're out of time. And that's a sentence that hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, really, God? At 37? I'm out of time? I'm not going to be the mother of the bride. I'm not going to see my youngest son hit his first home run. I'm not a perfect mother, but I'm their mother. And to think that I wouldn't finish raising them was pretty hard. New exclusive interviews with members of the crew and passengers. The whole story airs Sunday night at 8 Eastern, only here on CNN. Florida has a currently powerless chairman of the Republican Party, Christian Ziegler, and he is now being investigated for video voyeurism. That's when somebody videotapes another person when they're naked without their consent. And this is just the latest chapter in a huge sex scandal in Florida where Ziegler is accused of raping a woman, a woman with whom Ziegler and his wife have allegedly previously had consensual sex. As of now, Ziegler has not been charged with anything, but as CNN's Carlos Suarez reports, he could be forced out of his job on Monday. Christian Ziegler's fate as chair of the Republican Party of Florida is no longer in doubt. He needs to move on. He needs to resign. On Monday, party officials will move to officially oust him. GOP leaders, including Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, wanted Ziegler out long before this week's revelation that Ziegler may have secretly recorded a sexual encounter with a woman accusing him of rape. According to a new search warrant affidavit, investigators are looking into that claim in the latest chapter of this ongoing sex scandal. Ziegler, who claims the sex was consensual, showed detectives a two and a half minute long video of the October 2nd sexual encounter. The affidavit states, quote, the victim did not give Ziegler consent to take this video. Neither Ziegler's wife or the victim knew anything about this video. 
The affidavit also says Ziegler's lawyer told investigators that the woman who'd had a previous three-way sexual encounter with Ziegler and his wife, Bridget, asked Ziegler about the video in a message on Instagram. Investigators want access to that IG account, according to court documents. Christian Ziegler maintains his innocence and has refused to resign. He has not been charged criminally in the case. But last month, party officials removed him of all his duties and reduced his salary to just one dollar. You cannot lead the Republican Party with the charges that are standing in front of him and the th admissions he's made in the affidavits. You cannot morally lead the Republican Party forward. Bridget Ziegler, who co-founded the conservative group Moms for Liberty, hasn't been accused of any criminal wrongdoing. Since the scandal broke, she parted ways with the conservative nonprofit Leadership Institute, but has held on to her school board seat in Sarasota County, even after fellow board members called on her to resign, telling her the sex scandal is a distraction. It's not about the left. It's not about the right. It's about students. Bridget Ziegler, a close ally of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, advocated for Florida's parental rights and education law, dubbed by critics as the Don't Say Gay Bill. It removed discussion of sexual orientation and identity from public schools curriculum. Some parents and LGBTQ activists accuse the couple of hypocrisy. The hypocrisy comes from their relentless attacks on LGBTQ people, their public disparaging of our families and our communities, while they themselves were simultaneously living this private life. The hypocrisy is just stunning. And Jake, last month at an emergency meeting of party officials, we're told that Christian Ziegler tried to apologize and defend himself. It is a move that was not welcomed by party officials. We're told at one point some officials began heckling Christian Ziegler, saying they want him to go. Jake? So Christian's values, not exactly Christian values. Uh, Carlos Suarez in Miami, thank you so much. Ten days away. From the Iowa caucuses, one of the biggest conservative donors putting even more money behind one of Donald Trump's Republican rivals. How else the race is kicking into a new gear? That's next. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a new batch of documents related to convicted dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein has just been released. It includes testimony from a former Epstein employee about the famous and influential people who hung around his boss. Plus, she has been the subject of TV dramas for years. Gypsy Rose Blanchard, who admits she helped in the plot to kill her abusive mother after eight years behind bars. She is fresh out of prison and talking to CNN. And leading this hour, just 10 days away from the Iowa caucuses, Republican presidential hopefuls are blitzing the state, trying to sway any undecided caucus goers to break their way. In the next hour, Donald Trump is set to hold his first event of the day. Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley both spending the afternoon meeting with voters in the Hawkeye State. CNN's Kristen Holmes and Steve Contorno join me from Iowa. And, and Kristen, Trump's expected to give a speech uh, at one of his events in, in roughly an hour. That's right, Jake. And we actually just got excerpts from those remarks. Before I go through them, I just want to caveat that we often get excerpts ahead of Donald Trump's speeches. He does not always stick to script. So I'm going to go over what he is expected to say. But obviously, we cannot completely rely on these excerpts. So he does attack Joe Biden. He talks about his campaign event. He does not talk about the substance of what he said. He does not talk about Joe Biden's argument that Trump is a threat to democracy. Instead, uh, he goes after where the where the event was located. And he says that the reason why he's essentially talking about this democracy topic is because he doesn't want to talk about the border or inflation or Afghanistan or all the chaos he has caused throughout the world. Now, I do want to point out this is something that we know that Donald Trump's team is going to be really trying to double down on, pointing to how, quote unquote, chaotic things are in the world. And that's one of their talking points against Joe Biden. Uh, this continues on. He says that 
at one point he says that, uh, again, that he is not the one that is a threat to democracy, but that Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. And here's an interesting part. He, start, he turns now to the primary, uh, to the caucuses, saying that our country is dying and it's no time to waste your vote on another establishment career politician. Uh, but most of this is actually still back on Joe Biden. It reads very much like a general election speech starting to fit in here. Uh, like we are already at the start of a general election. Now, we also know one thing he's going to touch on today is trying to urge his supporters here not to be complacent because of those poll numbers. They are worried that people will not show up because of those large mar margins, and they want to get a huge turnout uh, on caucus night. Jake? All right, Kristen Holmes, we have some breaking news right now. CNN Breaking News. The U.S. Supreme Court has just put down their orders. Let's bring in CNN's Joan Biskupic. Joan, we're expecting some big... Uh, announcements from the U.S. Supreme Court. Did we get any of them? <laughs> we just did, Jake. The, the Supreme Court has just said it's going to hear the appeal of the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that said that Donald Trump should be off the ballot. The Supreme Court has accepted the appeal. It has set out a briefing schedule and it will have oral arguments on February 8th. This is very fast, and there's a chance that they can turn this around uh, at least by Super Tuesday on March 5th, but maybe even by February 11th or 12th when those ballots in California, uh, Colorado first go out. So what's important here are two things. First, the biggest thing here is that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to weigh in and give an answer once and for all whether this uh, 14th... Um, uh, the Constitution's 14th Amendment, Section 3, that bars insurrectionists from ever, you know, holding office again, whether that applies to Donald Trump. But what it did was it did not tell us exactly all the questions they're going to address. It's at least just saying we're taking this case. We're going to hear arguments on February 8th. And this really puts the court in play for this 2024 election cycle, Jake. All right. Paula Reed's with me. Paula, uh, what can you tell us? Well, Jake, the court has been under enormous pressure to take up this issue, this question of whether former President Trump is eligible to appear on the ballot given Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that bans insurrectionists from holding office. This is something that has been litigated across multiple states with differing outcomes. We saw, of course, in Maine and Colorado, he was removed from the ballot. But even within the state of Colorado, there was disagreement among the courts about whether this applies two presidents. Now, other states have considered this and opted to keep him on the ballot. States like Michigan and Minnesota didn't get into the merits of the bigger questions. Instead, they decided it on procedural grounds. But this is a constitutional question that clearly demands some clarity from the high court. And there has been increasing pressure on the court to take up this case. We've seen even over the past 48 hours, more challenges being filed in Illinois and Massachusetts. And if the court didn't weigh in here, these would continue to proliferate. But this is likely going to be the biggest test of Chief Justice John Roberts' career. This issue is arriving at a court that has been battered by scandals and controversial decisions like overturning Roe v. Wade. He is likely going to try to find a way to decide this case narrowly and build a consensus so that this does not appear in any way to be partisan. Uh, Joan, Joan Biskupic, uh, your, your, uh, your thoughts uh, about when we're going to actually have these arguments presented. Okay, so it'll be February 8th, and here's a critical thing. The court has not told us exactly what issues they're going to address. So, so there is a chance that they will never even get to the issue of whether Donald Trump incited an insurrection on January 6th. They might not even get to whether Donald Trump as president is covered by this. They have several off-ramps that they did not lay out yet. But what the parties will now do, the parties and several what we call friend of the court, uh, amicus briefs, are all going to come in trying to lay out the various options the court could take to settle this once and for all. Now, remember, this is something that uh, uh, states have handled very, uh, variations on their election law. So the justices are going to have to do something that goes beyond kind of the intricacies of what happened in Colorado and be clearer. And they could either do that, frankly, at the kind of gatekeeper stage to say, Maybe this is a, what's known as a political question, that the judiciary shouldn't even be part of it at all, that this is the kind of thing that belongs in the legislative branches. That is part of the questions that were presented to it in all the filings that came in this week, Jake. 
But once they get over that hurdle, there are a couple other threshold questions. But what they have to do is either stop it at the early stage so that it uh, is clear whether states have the authority to block a president from uh, the ballot or if if it's the kind of question that actually cannot ever be resolved and has to be handled legislatively, you know, within within those kinds of boundaries or get to the point where they shut it down once and for all and say that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment would not bar Donald Trump or it does bar Donald Trump from ballots everywhere. Paula? What's interesting here is timing, because we know that the one thing that all the parties agree on, Trump, uh, the Republican Party in Colorado, the challengers here, is they need to move quickly here. And uh, the Supreme Court can act in days uh, if they want to, but here they are setting an oral argument. Now, that's notable because that is not something that the Trump team actually asked for. They just wanted this reversed. But there will be an oral argument ahead of that. There is a briefing schedule. There's work that needs to be done between now and February 8th when they'll have this oral argument. I mean, this is moving along pretty quickly quickly, but it, it's unclear if this is actually going to be resolved. Really, it appears it will not likely be resolved for the primaries. Uh, the concern there that has been expressed by the parties is that you could have people voting in primaries where they're not sure if their candidate will ultimately be eligible for the general election. But here the Supreme Court is at least granting this request to weigh in on this critical constitutional issue. And as Joe noted, there are a lot of questions before them. One is whether Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to presidents. We've seen even courts within the same state disagree about that. The other question is, well, is it self-executing? Should the states be executing this? Is there a role for Congress? Now, interestingly, uh, the Republican Party of Colorado also asked if if political parties have a First Amendment right that should be considered here. Now, it's unclear exactly which questions uh, they will or will not answer, but there is likely going to be a lot of pressure to try to decide this narrowly, to try to avoid the question of whether Trump engaged in an insurrection and instead focus on the constitutional issues and possibly this question of, well, who has the authority to execute Section 3 of the 14th Amendment? But this is just one uh, of the big moments uh, in 2024 where all eyes are on the Supreme Court to make a critical decision that could have an impact on the election. We also expect in the next few weeks they'll also be asked to weigh in on the question of immunity for former President Trump in the election subversion case. So, again, the Supreme Court is going to have an enormous role in this election year. So just to bring everybody up to speed who's watching right now, the U.S. Supreme Court has just weighed in uh, and they will uh, play a role uh, in, in hearing this case. Uh, this is about whether or not as the Colorado Supreme Court declares, Donald Trump, because he, in their view, uh, engaged in mm -hmm. insurrection, is banned from running for president because of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, <clears throat> Pardon me, which, uh, which, which came into being after uh, the Civil War. So because of the main Secretary of State, who said Donald Trump engaged in insurrection, and he's not allowed to be on the main ballot, and it is up to the main Secretary of State in that state. And because of the Colorado Supreme Court, uh, the pre Donald Trump's legal teams asked the U.S. Supreme Court to like weigh in. Is this did did the U.S. I'm sorry, did the Colorado Supreme Court make a mistake or not? And they just laid out a deadline uh, on. There will be oral arguments on February 8th, Thursday, February 8th, on this matter. Uh, did the Colorado Supreme Court? make a mistake before then thursday january 18th any friend of the court briefs anybody wants to weigh in either for or against donald trump can do that uh, respondents briefs uh, are to be filed uh, on or before wednesday january 21st the reply brief is to be filed on or before monday february 5th uh, and then of course the oral arguments themselves on february 8th uh, cnn legal analyst and former federal prosecutor elliot williams is back with us uh, Elliot, what's your reaction to this development? And also, uh, weigh in on this schedule. It seems to be a fairly expedited schedule as these things go. Yeah, so you know, big picture, Jake, uh, this is all a window into why we have a Supreme Court in the first place and you know why the Supreme Court even takes cases in the first place. And there's sort of two big buckets of reasons. Number one, if there is a substantial question of federal law, constitutional law, that is just unresolved. And number two, is there a dispute either among courts of appeals around the country or state Supreme Court 
courts around an important federal issue. This is the kind of rare case where both of those things are happening. This is a matter of critical importance to the American people upon which there is a major dispute among states. Colorado and Maine are in a different place than other states are. And so this was a very important case for the Supreme Court to take on. Now, in terms of the substance, I agree with everything that's been said here that it is very much, I, I think, probably in the court's interest to try to resolve this in as unanimous a manner as they can with, with getting into the fewest controversial issues that they can. But there are serious issues that need to be resolved here. Like Paula had laid out this question of whether the president of the United States is a, quote, officer of the United States, which sounds sort of silly and obvious to us. Of course he is. But that's kind of not what the Constitution says in its language. So what did the framers in writing it intend to mean? Um, and who decides on these questions of insurrection? These are very difficult, very thorny, very complex constitutional, theoretical almost questions that the court has to sort out here. Jake, yeah. can I just piggyback on something there? Sure. Because, you know, the four of us were just together on your <laughs> set wondering about the integrity and stature of the Supreme uh -huh. Court. I think the fact that the Supreme Court issued this order today when all the filings had just gotten in last night is already a, a first step toward trying to get clarity in the law and, to, and recognizes that voters need to know who they can cast a ballot for. So it's taking, it's, it's acting quickly, which I think, again, inspires confidence and shows at least that they're ready to take it on and we'll see how they do take it on. But I think in this, in this first step, uh, the chief and the eight associate justices are showing leadership to try to have some clarity in the law at this crucial moment. You know, Jake, I didn't, I didn't take up your second question, which was the, the, the timeline. And uh, this is a breakneck pace yeah. in Supreme Court terms or, or in any American legal terms. The idea of a matter being briefed just in uh, days, if not weeks, is it's very fast. You know, appeals can sometimes take years to resolve, if month, at a minimum months and sometimes years. They are clearly moving with a kind of urgency that isn't common in Supreme Court cases and I think is a recognition of how important it is to resolve this, however they come out on it. Yeah, oral arguments uh, a month from Monday. Yeah. Uh, for journalists, that's forever. <laughs> but uh, but for the U.S. Supreme Court, that's like in five yeah. minutes. Yeah. Uh, and and you know we brought this up earlier, Elliot. At least one of Trump's lawyers believes that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to make a decision uh, that favors uh, Trump's. And when she and when she said this, she invoked the fact and that uh, you know Donald Trump put three of these Supreme Court justices on the bench on the highest court. Take a listen. Yeah. I think it should be a slam dunk in the Supreme Court. I have faith in them. You know, people like um, Kavanaugh, who the president fought for, who the president went through hell to get into place, he'll step up. Those people will step up, not because they're pro-Trump, but because they're pro-law. I mean, the, the fact is that, that people, um, for people who don't remember, uh, Brett Kavanaugh was a very embattled uh, U.S. Supreme Court nominee, uh, there were a number of Republicans, uh, including people in the Trump administration, uh, who wanted Trump to pull the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh, to whom he owned nothing. He didn't know the guy. Uh, and Donald Trump decided to stay and fight, got the guy on the bench. And here you have his lawyer, Elliot, very nakedly on Fox, which I'm sure Brett Kavanaugh watches. I'm sure Just Justice Kavanaugh watches, uh, saying, you know, you probably like your job, Brett, right? And, you know, Donald Trump uh, got there. He fought for you. And, uh, you know, we'll see what you do. Uh, I mean, pretty, pretty um, crass. It's, uh, that's a great restaurant. It would be a shame if something happened right, to it. Right. No, no, I mean, to the contrary, it's, look, if we were talking about abortion or the death penalty or firearms or matters that are sort of cultural issues around which there is deep partisan divides, of course, you know, I think it would be fair to predict a conservative-leading Supreme Court to rule a certain way. That's sort of, and frankly, we have years of data suggesting that. You know, the issues uh, at play here, yes, they affect a uh, Republican candidate for president and his opponents, but these are not standard right-left issues. These are complex issues of constitutional interpretation. And frankly, a court that has an interest in preserving its integrity and not appearing too partisan, just like we were talking about 20 minutes ago after Bush versus Gore, mm -hmm. the court's reputation took a hit. And I would assume the court does not want that to happen again. And so, yes, it's a 6-3 Republican split. But I don't, anybody who can predict what's going on here uh, is a, should be a far richer human being.
thing, certainly than I am, uh, and, and many others. I mean, I don't, I don't, Paula. I mean, I have to say, like, I think if I had to bet, I would bet that this U.S. Supreme Court is going to rule that that the Colorado Supreme Court overreached uh, its authority and has no right to do that. But but what do you think? So one thing, the, the Alina Haba comment, it, it was unnecessary and it was odd because there are so many ways to your question for former President Trump to come out on top here and to appear on the ballot despite these challenges. So to make that sort of mafioso comments about the fact that Trump helped one of the justices get his job, it, it isn't helpful. It's not helpful to the integrity uh, of her client or of the high court. Because again, on the law, most people think there's a pretty good chance that he will win. Now, how will he win? How will they decide? Again, there's likely going to be enormous pressure not to get into the question of whether he engaged in an insurrection but to focus narrowly on constitutional questions about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment and how it should be implemented. And again, to build a coalition. This is the job of the Chief Justice, to build a coalition so that this decision does not appear partisan. And comments like that from Trump's legal spokesperson, again, it does not help with the perception of impartiality of this court. And it's just an odd thing to say when your client has such a good chance of prevailing on the merits. Uh, it's odd, uh, except it, it, it would be interesting to find out uh, if Elena Haba freelanced that comment or if her client had suggested that she go on Hannity and make that comment. I mean, I don't know the answer to that, but it is in line with the way that Donald yes. Trump uh, mm -hmm. and his transactional way uh, of doing business. Um, thanks to all of you. Really appreciate the breaking news on this late Friday afternoon. The U.S. Supreme Court deciding it will he hear oral arguments uh, about whether or not Donald Trump should be on the ballot. Uh, Colorado, the, US, the Supreme Court there said he should not be because he engaged in insurrection. Donald Trump saying that the Colorado Supreme Court overstepped its authority, made a mistake. We're going to have more reaction coming up. back with breaking news late on this Friday. The U.S. Supreme Court says they will hear Trump's appeal on the 14th Amendment and whether or not he can be barred from holding office because, according to the Colorado Supreme Court, he engaged in insurrection. My panel's with me now. Scott Jennings, you've heard our reporting. The Supreme Court going to hear Trump's appeal. Uh, this will be one month from Monday. That's breakneck speed for the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, your reaction? They need to do it uh, because obviously these questions are bubbling up from the states and people need to know uh, who they're voting for. I think it's likely the Supreme Court will uh, rule in favor of keeping Trump on the ballot. I think to do otherwise would, would probably, uh, uh, I'll echo what David Axelrod said the other day, tear the country apart. Uh, and so it needs to get done. It needs to get settled so the voters can then settle our politics in 2024. Paul, this uh, announcement comes the same day that President Biden uh, gave his a big speech on democracy and how Donald Trump uh, poses a direct threat to democracy in, in his view. He has not weighed in on whether or not he has an opinion on whether or not Donald Trump should be on the ballot in Colorado, in Maine, etc. Do you think there would be an upside uh, for President Biden to say, I think President Biden, I mean, I think President Trump should be on the ballot uh, until he is adjudicated guilty of engaging in an insurrection? I mean, w is there a, would that help? I mean, that's probably where it's gonna go anyway, as Scott notes. Do you think there would be a political plus right. to that? Uh, I think not. Uh, I, I think in his heart of hearts, I hate to read Joe Biden's heart, but uh, in his heart of heart, he wants Trump on the ballot. He, he feels like I beat him once, I beat him again. Um, uh, but more than that, I, I think Scott is right as a political matter. Politician. Trump is a political problem. He demands a political solution. He needs to be defeated again at the ballot box. Uh, now, I, there are actually the, the, the article I read from Judge Ludwig, a very noted Michael Ludwig conservative scholar, Larry Tribe at Harvard, another uh, progressive, he's a progressive constitutional scholar. It's very tightly argued. I don't care. I, honestly, what's best for the country is to have this election. If the if the Republicans want Mr. Trump on the ballot, they should have they should have Mr. Trump on the ballot. And I think that's what's going to happen. Poor court, though. Justice Chief Justice Roberts, must his head must be exploding to have this comment you just played from Mr. Trump's lawyer bragging that, well, Kavanaugh, you know, he'll be for us because Trump helped him get his job. So the court is going to take a huge black eye for this. And S.E. Cup, we can't uh, ignore the fact uh, that the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary 
will have already taken place before these oral arguments take place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important. And I think this really plays right into Trump's hands. Um, Trump loves this because, first of all, he loves chaos. He courts chaos. He creates chaos. And second, he, his raison d'etre over the past few years has been to undermine the integrity of our elections, to convince his base that they are rigged, that they're rigged against him. And while we can talk about the importance of the constitutional merits of this case, I think to the average voter, they think, well, maybe maybe he's right. Maybe, you know, forces are trying to rig it. Uh, so I, there's, you know, he loves this. He loves this going into Iowa. He loves this coming out of Iowa. This is, uh, this is really helpful for him. And uh, SE, we should note, there is also this question of a precedent if the Colorado Supreme Court can do this to Donald Trump, who we should note uh, whether or not anybody watching thinks he has in, thinks Donald Trump engaged in insurrection, uh, that is not a, a legal fact beyond this Colorado case. The, the, he has not been charged with that by special counsel Jack Smith. Certainly Congress has not found that. Uh, he, was, you know, he was acquitted uh, uh, when he was impeached for this. And SE today, Governor DeSantis on the campaign trail suggested that, that uh, Joe Biden could be removed from the ballot in Florida. Take a listen. This is just going to be a tit for tat, and it's just not going to end well. You could make a case, and we're actually, I'm actually looking at this in Florida now, could we make a credible case that Biden, because of the invasion of 8 million, um, and again, I don't think that's the, the right way to do it. So Ron DeSantis is looking into this right now in Florida, whether or not Joe Biden could be taken off the ballot there. Uh, because of the problem at the border. Essie, your, your reaction? Because the whole of the Republican Party right now is animated by a politics of revenge. Um, the punitiveness, the punishment, the retribution is what is leading so much of Republican policy and rhetoric. And, you know, you hear that from Trump. He, I mean, he's promising to get revenge on his uh, perceived enemies if he becomes president uh, again, but it has trickled down to Congress and even state houses, as you just heard from Ron DeSantis. And, and Paul Begala, I have to say, I, I have never, I've been covering presidential elections now since the year 2000, and I've never seen a presidential election where there is such an embattled frontrunner and everybody trying to wrest the crown from him constantly defends him uh, when it comes to uh, whether it's legal, uh, you know, wh- whether it's, uh, you know, legal charges or criminal charges against him, I- I've never seen anything like this. It's true. That whole field running against Trump, they're so cowed by him, you can hear them moo. It's pathetic. If you want to, to take the, the crown, you have to hit him. And by the way, my man Joe Biden did that today. We'll get to that in a minute. But these DeSantis is a little bit better last night, I have to say, uh, about challenging uh, Mr. Trump. Nikki Haley has danced around a bit. Chris Christie has been the only one who has figured out he's actually running against Trump. Frankly, hasn't worked out very well for him. So, mm-hmm. you know, but if you can't, if you can't beat him, you ought to join him. And, and so these folks are all trying to have, have it both ways, and it's not working. Scott Jennings, last word. Well, I, I, you know, in defense of the rest of the field, I don't think any of them ever come, came up with a way to solve the algebra equation of how to <laughs> run against a Donald Trump who was getting rocket fuel from every single engagement he got from the yeah, fair legal enough. system. So they all decided to do basically the same thing, which is defend the guy. And as Paul noted, it, it hasn't yielded anything other than an increase in Donald Trump's chances of being the nominee. Thanks to one and all. Uh, next Wednesday will be the last presidential debate before the Iowa caucuses. Ambassador Nikki Haley and Governor Ron DeSantis are going to share the stage. I will be moderating alongside my friend and colleague Dana Bash. Look for the CNN Republican presidential debate live from Des Moines, Iowa, 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN, and that is Wednesday. President Biden makes a major speech trying to defend democracy, and the U.S. Supreme Court agrees to take up Trump's appeal to keep him on the ballot. The former chair of the January 6th committee is with us next. And the breaking news, the U.S. Supreme Court announcing this hour that they are going to hear oral arguments. The Colorado State Supreme Court made this unprecedented decision removing Donald Trump from the state's ballot because they say he engaged in insurrection. Donald Trump is now appealing that, and the U.S. Supreme Court will hear oral arguments. We're joined now by Mississippi Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson. He was the chairman of the January 6th Select Committee. Let's start with your 
your reaction. Um, what do you think uh, of the announcement from the U.S. Supreme Court? And ultimately, how do you think they're going to rule? Well, let me just say, Jake, that in America, uh, we see a lot of differences, uh, primarily in courts of law. Uh, what you see before the Supreme Court is just how a democracy should play out. And so I look forward uh, to the arguments before the court and an ultimate decision. And unlike what happened on Earth 6, a lot of us will follow that decision. Uh, I just hope that the court gives it uh, a good look. Uh, there are some things that our committee uh, discovered that causes great concern as to whether or not the president was uh, intricately involved in the activities of January 6th that could render him uh, ineligible to run. So I look forward uh, to the court hearing it and an ultimate decision. The U.S. Supreme Court obviously will have the final word, but you are a learned man. Do you think that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection? Do you think that the Colorado Supreme Court made the right decision uh, by taking him off the ballot because of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution? Well, let me say that the work of our committee, uh, the staff who spent countless hours, uh, the members of the committee who spent uh, over 18 months looking at uh, information, uh, our report speaks for itself. Uh, we believe Donald Trump uh, uh, masterminded a lot of what went on. Uh, he's guilty of uh, promoting uh, the insurrection. Uh, he caused great harm to the reputation of this country and threaten the lives of people who worked in the United States Capitol on that day. Uh, he has to be held accountable uh, for those activities. He promoted it. Uh, no one, even a president or former president uh, of the United States, is above the law. And that makes Donald Trump uh, one of those individuals to be held accountable. Do you think the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which bars individuals who engaged in insurrection from seeking higher office. You can debate whether or not that includes the president of the United States. But do you think, A, it does include the president of the United States? Yeah. And, and B, do you think that Donald Trump has met that standard and should be barred from holding office? Well, first of all, uh, we sell those differences uh, in, the, in the courts, like, like they're moving. If the citizens of Colorado and their leadership determine that uh, Donald Trump should not be on the ballot. That's the citizens of Colorado. Uh, the dispute ultimately will go to the Supreme Court uh, as as we know it's headed, and, and we'll live by that decision. Now, from the work of our committee, uh, we made certain recommendations about uh, Donald Trump's uh, conduct on that day and leading up to that day that we feel very comfortable with. Uh, uh, New York, the District of Columbia uh, will be addressed things uh, that our committee uh, uncovered. But we were not a prosecutorial body. Uh, we were basically looking into the facts and circumstances of January 6th. So here we are close to a three-year anniversary, and the, the wheels of justice uh, are moving. And so I would say the work of our committee uh, has a lot to do uh, with what's happening in those different venues around the country. I want you to take a listen to something President Biden said this afternoon in a major campaign speech. He was in Pennsylvania near Valley Forge. So hear me clearly. I'll say what Donald Trump won't. Political violence is never, ever acceptable in the United States political system. Never, never, never. It has no place in a democracy, none. And yet, the threat of political violence seems to be practically everywhere, sir. Uh, how do you explain it? Well, it's difficult to explain what happened on January 6th. It's difficult. Uh, Donald Trump's uh, speeches uh, around that to explain uh, what's happening right now. Uh, people want you to believe that what they saw and what occurred on January 6th didn't happen, uh, but it did. Uh, they want somehow to say uh, in some venues that the FBI 
uh, orchestrated it. Others want to say Black Lives Matter and Tifa, but we found none of that evidence on our committee. And so uh, I'm still the eternal optimist about this democracy. Uh, I don't think we sell our differences like what you saw on January 6th. And our committee produced a document uh, that's irrefutable in terms of facts. What you're hearing in that echo chamber is absolutely patently uh, untrue. And, and I, I dare any of those individuals who are saying to the contrary to bring the evidence forward. Uh, talk is cheap. Uh, we spent a lot of time uh, producing that report. Committee work speaks for itself. And so, uh, Jake, uh, mm -hmm. our great democracy depends on its citizens. Uh, but that, that dependence is tied to the truth. Donald Trump is not committed to the truth. During last night's uh, CNN town hall in Iowa, a voter asked Governor DeSantis if the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th were patriotic. I want you to listen to his answer. No, of course not. I mean, that was not a good day for the country. Um, I think the media has taken that, and I think the left has taken that and really tried to politicize it. He's made this argument before um, that it wasn't patriotic, but that January 6th was overblown by Democrats and by the media. Um, you were at the Capitol on January 6th. What do you think? Well, you know, we had uh, people defending the Capitol who were hurt, some lost their lives, uh, staff, members of Congress, myself included, uh, was held captive for several hours, not able to leave, and for somebody to try to trivialize, uh, it's a shame. Uh, we are a better country than what occurred on January 6th. For someone to promote that kind of exercise and try to defend it uh, is a sad day. Those folk who take a solemn oath of office to say that they want this country to be the best that they can be and will protect and preserve it, but yet come out with this kind of language, uh, they don't deserve uh, to hold public office. They don't deserve uh, the right uh, to promote uh, patriotism in this country. So, Jake, uh, I'm convinced that in the end, the people will speak. Uh, those several hundred people who've already gone to jail for those activities, those several hundred who are in the pipeline to go to jail, uh, they did wrong. Yeah. In America, uh, as I told you, no one broke the law. Yeah. And, and, and those individuals who followed Donald Trump's edicts and broke the law are having to pay. And ultimately, one charges uh, over Donald Trump's head, uh, he will have to atone uh, and defend them. And, and at some point, he will have to uh, suffer the consequences. Congressman Benny Thompson, uh, thank you so much, sir. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back. In our pop culture lead today, Gypsy Rose Blanchard, the woman who plotted to have her boyfriend kill her abusive mother in 2015, is speaking out after serving eight and a half years in prison. Now, you might be familiar with Blanchard's story, the stories of her mother forcing her daughter to fake serious illnesses for most of her life have been depicted over the years in various documentaries and TV series, included, including uh, 2017's Mommy Dead and Dearest on our sister channel, HBO, uh, and The Act in, on uh, Hulu in 2019. Gypsy Rose Blanchard spoke ahead of tonight's debut of a new Lifetime docuseries with CNN's Elizabeth Wagmeister, where she describes her time in prison as being the first time she tasted freedom. I've been out one week and I'm enjoying my new freedom. Gypsy Rose Blanchard, smiling and free, released on parole after serving eight and a half years of a 10-year prison sentence. Blanchard pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in 2016 after she and then-boyfriend Nicholas Godijan hatched a plan to kill her mother, Didi. Godijan admitted to stabbing Didi to death. He's serving a life sentence without parole. Do you feel that the time that you served was justified for your role in your mother's death? You know, I did something wrong, okay? And I take accountability for that. I acknowledge that I did my time. Blanchard's journey from childhood to now release convict is one of trauma 
deception, murder, and ultimately, a new marriage and independence. Her harrowing story documented in an upcoming series on Lifetime. My mother controlled everything I did. I was forced to use a wheelchair. She started telling people that I had cancer. But none of it was true. Gypsy was the victim of a rare disorder called Munchausen syndrome by proxy in which a caregiver, in this case Gypsy's mother Dee Dee, fakes, exaggerates, or induces illness in a child to gain attention. I started to feel like it was either her or me. Do you think if it were just you, would you have been able to go through with this act of killing your own mother? Absolutely not. I think it's very important for people to understand that I was brought to a breaking point. I could never kill someone. And so in a desperate situation, I had asked this request of Nick and thinking that I had no other option out. What do you think that your life would look like today if your mother were still here? I would still be under this medical abuse that I was going through. I don't think that there would have been an end in sight for me. I honestly think one of two things would have happened. Either she would have eventually got caught, but too late to save me, or I would have been killed from all of the medical malpractices, the surgeries, the medications. All of that takes a toll on a body, especially if you don't need the medications or surgeries. Despite her mother's decades-long victimization, Gypsy says she actually forgives her mom. Now, if your mother were here today, what would you tell her, Gypsy? I would say that I, I, I understand, like I see her in the way that she was not an evil woman, she was not a monster, she was just a sick woman, and she would have needed a lot of mental health care. I see her for who she is now, or who she was. Jake, Gypsy Rose has amassed over 6 million followers since her release just one week ago, and she tells me that with her newfound platform, she is hoping to help others who are experiencing childhood abuse. Jake? All right, Elizabeth Wagmeister, thank you so much for that report. We'll be right back. Coming up Sunday on State of the Union, former Vice President Mike Pence will be live from Israel with us at Sunday morning at 9 and noon at only here on CNN. The next Wednesday, of course, the very last presidential debate before the Iowa caucuses and the first actual votes. Ambassador Nikki Haley, Governor Ron DeSantis are going to share the stage. I'll moderate alongside my colleague Dana Bash. Look for the CNN Republican presidential debate live from Des Moines, Iowa at 9 p.m. Eastern, only here on CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you Sunday morning. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.